Welcome to the Future of Agriculture podcast, the show that explores the people, companies, and ideas that are shaping the future of agribusiness. Innovation, resourcefulness, and collaboration are essential for feeding a growing population, and we believe the agriculture industry is up for the challenge. Please welcome your host, Tim Hammerich. Hey there, my name is Tim Hamrich. I'm an agribusiness recruiter and the host of the Future of Agriculture podcast. Thank you so much for the download and for being with us here today. Well, I always appreciate your feedback, both positive and, uh, shall we say, constructive. And I received a piece of constructive feedback lately that really made a lot of sense. They said, since January, you've had two female guests on the show and all the rest have been male. What the heck? There's plenty of females doing interesting and exciting work in the industry of agriculture. Where are they at? And that's a valid point. So for the next three episodes, this one and the two that follow, we are going to have three incredible high-powered females contributing to the future of agriculture. And what a great way to start here today with Sarah Hollenbeck. She and her husband and her in-laws farm and ranch in Molt, Montana. They have primarily a sheep operation, but they do a lot of other diversified things that you're going to find out about. Sarah and I first met way back when we wore the blue jackets in California as FFA members and uh, haven't really kept in touch, but I have been able to follow some of the cool stuff she's been doing on social media to tell the story of what it's like to live on a ranch in rural Montana in a way that appeals to even your most avid urbanite. It's really, really interesting. The stories that she tells and the way that she portrays the, the rural lifestyle that means so much to her and her family. She also talks about the diversified operations that she has kind of gotten her family into out there, including a high five meat company uh, and then just her social media presence on uh, Instagram, primarily as Sarah Sheep Lady. And we even talk a little bit about her featured pet, shall we say? the famous goat, Totes My Goats. So I think you'll enjoy this episode. There's a lot of interesting takeaways, and I certainly had fun uh, catching up with Sarah Hollenbeck. So Hollenbeck Ranch, we're located in Molt, Montana, which is about 35 miles northwest of Billings, Montana. Um, If you were to literally picture kind of small town, middle of nowhere, Montana, you're probably going to picture what will closely resemble what molt looks like. <laughs> we have a post office and an L grain elevator, and that's about it. And then I think we have about 100 residents or so, most of which live on ranches. Our closest neighbor, I think, is about two miles from us. And it's it's rural Montana. It's beautiful. We sit... Um, pretty close to the Beartooth Mountains and the Crazies. You can see both mountain ranges from our ranch, and uh, we experience every season. Most stressful one is winter, of course, because we can get a lot of snow. And um, The ranch is run by my father-in-law, Mike Hollenbeck, and my husband, Henry Hollenbeck. They're partners on, on about everything, including the livestock, and we're primarily a sheep operation. Um, We do have some cattle, we do have some goats, we do have horses, uh, but primarily we consider ourselves a sheep ranch in Molt, Montana. And the crazies are mountains or those are your neighbors? (laughs) Both, no. Those are the mountains um, that a lot of hunters get lost in every year because they're very uh, treacherous, but they're beautiful and um, that's one of the mountain ranges we can see from the ranch. We also have um, sheep herders from Peru. We utilize the government program uh, H-2A, and we 
have five sheep herders from Peru right now, and um, we rely heavily on that program because without them, we wouldn't be able to find uh, people that have knowledge about sheep, um, let alone people that can come live and work in rural Montana with us. So we're very fortunate to have them, um, and they're very important to our operation as well. That's really interesting. So do they come and work permanently with you, or is it a a short-term type of visa? It's a working visa. Yeah, they can stay up to three years before they need to go home and renew their visa. Um, Usually our guys will stay about the two-year mark. They'll go home for a couple months and then come back again. Um, Four out of the five guys we have right now are returning. Um, We do have one new one right now. Um, But we feel like we treat them like family, and that's why they keep returning, and, and we hope that they... They keep coming back because once you kind of have an established worker and they know what they're doing, then they're worth their weight in gold. And especially with sheep, so many people don't necessarily know um, how to, you know, work with sheep and and how their personalities and attributes are to run. So it's important for us to to maintain a good relationship with them so that they want to continue to work for us. So I take it these are these are guys that have been around sheep their entire life in the mountains of Peru. Correct. Yeah, they're from. Most of them are from a uh, little town called Huancayo, and from what they tell us, and we've kind of looked on Google and stuff with them, um, it's like a village, and it's in literally the middle of nowhere of Peru, and there's a lot of sheep. They call them companies down there instead of ranches. And they all um, come over with some knowledge of sheep, and that's really important for us because it's hard to, um, you know, stick someone out with a thousand sheep to watch if they don't know what they're doing. So it's um, a great program, and we're fortunate enough to use it, and a lot of the other sheep ranchers in Montana and throughout the nation use that program as well. That's really interesting, and not not to get, like, too heavy too quickly, but in the current political climate, is there any risk to that H2A with sort of the the nationalism rhetoric that's going on? Yeah, definitely. It's something that we are always um, trying to keep on our radar of what's going on. Uh, it makes us really nervous because uh, if we didn't have them, we would, we would definitely not be as big as we are with the sheep. Um, so we are constantly in contact with uh, the companies we go through to get them over here as well as our you know, state representatives and government officials um, to make sure that we keep sheep on the radar as an uh, industry that we don't want to see disappear. And if that's going to be possible, we have to keep um, this type of labor force around. And right now it sounds like we'll be all right. Um, unfortunately, as everyone in agriculture knows, there's always something that's threatening our livelihood, and this happens to be one that... Um, is at the top of our radar things that we need to keep on the forefront and something to talk about and make sure that we're always fighting to, to keep. Yeah, definitely. My, my in-laws are from Wyoming and I'd never heard of this before, but as you drive around, you see these interesting little like um, sort of campers and they call them their sheep wagons. Do you guys have those in Montana? Yeah, we, we don't have the like official really cool older ones that a lot of, um, like the guys that have been running sheep forever have. Um, I actually saw one on, on an Airbnb listing. There was an old sheep wagon, and I'm like, that's 
awesome. <laughs> um, we use just campers, uh, single axle campers. They have to be able to kind of get over some rough terrain. We do um, graze summer pastures in Wyoming, North Dakota, and South Dakota, and they're usually we're in the middle of nowhere, so we have to be able to get the tri- or the camper around easily. So it's um, it's their little home on wheels. <laughs> I know. I, I, it's funny you say about the Airbnb because I was just thinking, you know, I probably need to buy some of those from up there in Wyoming that aren't being used and sell them to hipsters down here in Austin. I bet I could make some. You probably could. They're expensive because we've looked into getting some and they can run up to like $8,000 and they're literally just like pretty much old covered wagons that have been made into uh, sheep camps. But they are really awesome. They've got little like legit stoves in them and um they're great. They're great for sheep sheep camps, and and the guys really like them. I wish we could get some of them. They're also really hard to find because there's not very many left. But yeah, just make them into Airbnbs, and you'll make a killing, I guess. <laughs> that, that'll be the image for those of you listening. That'll be the image for this podcast. So I'll find a picture of that. <laughs> yes. Tell us more about about uh, having a sheep ranch. Now, how how much of the revenue comes from selling the meat, or versus selling the wool, or is that even part of it? So we primarily um, raise our sheep for meat production. Um, We still focus on our wool quality because that's uh, really important to us. We have to have a sheep that can tolerate Montana winters. Um, We primarily run a Rambouillet Targhee cross. And with that, we focus, it's kind of like a dual purpose breed where their offspring can grow quickly and produce a high quality meat, but also our replacement ewes will have a high quality wool as well. And we are probably, as far as how much we make versus uh, meat and wool, it's probably 80-20, but that 20%, that's still a big part of our operation, just the wool. And so with current climate of... Um, the wool industry, you know, a couple of years ago, wool wasn't worth worth too much. It was almost costing you money just to get it off of your sheep. But now, um, with the resurgence of American-made products, specifically American-made products made of wool, American wool, um, the wool market's coming back. And so it's important to us to maintain a higher quality wool so that our wool is worth more, obviously, and can be used in those um, higher quality American-made wool products that are, you know, coming, um, really coming back. And um, with that, we we really focus on the breeding of our sheep um, to make sure that that wool continues to improve year after year, um, and that's been really important to us. Obviously, the meat production is where we are getting the majority of our revenue, and that side of it is very important as well. But we still like to really focus on creating a product, a quality wool as well. Definitely. Now, for, for those listening that, that may not be familiar, you know, with animal agriculture in general, are, are all of those sheep still sheared by hand? Yes. So what happens typically is we will shear about two weeks ahead of lambing. And, and this is different for every ranch. Um, not everyone does it exactly the same. It's relatively similar, but... We get a crew in. Um, they're primarily uh, foreign workers from New Zealand or um, the UK, and they are highly, highly specializedly skilled in shearing sheep. That's what they do full time. They travel the globe and shear sheep. So what they do is 
at our ranch, they come in with like a trailer and um, I have a lot of posts about it on my social media, videos, things like that. But they all have hand shears, but they're obviously electric. And then they can shear these ewes under two minutes, sometimes even faster. And I think we just had a shearing day a couple weeks ago and I think they sheared 800 ewes in one day. And that's pretty typical for a shearing crew of five guys um, or women. We have had women shears too. Um, but And then we'll have them come back for like our next band before we shear again. And so it's a, it's a fun time on the ranch during shearing time because I always enjoy, one, having people come visit me because I live in the middle of nowhere, so any visitors I get really excited about. But also, um, they're, you know, from other countries, so it's a good time to talk about, you know, we talk a lot about sheep and lamb and wool, and um, it's just fun to have them out there. And, and obviously, that always means that lambing time is right around the corner when we shear, so it's a happening time on the ranch for sure. It is cool. So is that that's in the springtime, I take it, then? For us, yes. We'll start... Um, the end of March, and then we'll do another. We've got another sharing time coming up here soon in April, and then the end of April will, or the beginning of May, we'll finish out the rest of our use. Okay, and this shows me how little I know about sheep. So, sorry, you have to bear with me. Are, <laughs> the the ones that you sell for meat, do they come right off of pasture to the meat processor, or is there some sort of finishing like in cattle, like a feedlot? Um, we do finish our lambs out. There are some operations that we'll do, like if they're certified organic or um, grass-fed, they will come straight off the pasture. Um, we can sell some of them like that, but we prefer to put a little bit more weight on them in the feedlot setting, um, and we've got the setup to do that, fortunately. A lot of people will sell directly to feedlots coming straight off the pasture, um, and so it's just kind of a, a personal preference for the rancher if, one, they even have the space to do that, or two, if they have the feed to do it as well. And we're fortunate enough to be in a location where we can get a lot of byproduct from local farms and ranches to feed our sheep um, in regards to their ration. Um, we can find some great uh, feed products to, um, to, feed our, to feed our lambs. But it it's kind of just depends ranch to ranch. A lot of people will sell them um, straight off their mom to feed lots. Um, down in Colorado, there's quite a few. Or um, if you're fortunate enough, like us, we built our own feedlot and we're able to finish out our own lambs. Great. And so if I understood you right, you know, from it's it's the point at which they go the feedlot that you decide whether they could go for like grass fed or organic. And you could still do that with your lambs or you could send them to your feedlot. Is that right? Right. And then also at feedlots, they can also stay. What's common in feeding out lambs is all natural. So basically, they're not given any antibiotics or anything like that. And that's really common in the lamb industry. Even if they do go to a feedlot, they can still be marketed as all natural. It's just a matter of what they're getting fed. And that's been really popular in the lamb industry is to keep them keep an all natural product. Cool. And you even have your own meat uh, retail shop, right? High Five Meats, or at least you go to farmer's markets and sell online. Tell, tell us about that and ha how that has worked for you. So when I started, the transition kind of to the ranch when I first moved there, I knew a little bit about sheep. I'd always had some ewes growing up, but not on the scale of what we are now. Um, and I knew what we had was a really quality product because we were eating our own lambs. And I just thought, you know, there has to be a way for me to market my lamb 
directly, even if in a local market, even if I'm just doing some direct marketing. And so I talked it over with my husband, and he was 100% on board with the idea. And so I started trying to sell lamb just in the local Billings community. And what I found was people had either, one, never had lamb, so they were kind of iffy about wanting to try it, or they'd had a bad experience with it. And so I kept thinking, like, God, there's got to be a way I can get people to try lamb. What I mean, what do I do? And also at a ranch, we also raise cattle, and we have some neighbors that raise some pigs. And so I thought, there's got to be a way that I can get people to eat our meats and also try some lamb at the same time. So um, we started brainstorming this idea of creating these combination meat packages with beef, pork, and then just a little bit of lamb to try and get people to try it. Um, and and then with that lamb, people don't know how to cook it. So we were trying to think of a product of lamb that would be easy enough for people that had never cooked it to try it. And so that's where we came up with a lamb sausage or like a bratwurst almost and mixed a little bit of pork fat in with it so it's got that familiar taste. But it's also definitely lamb and tastes like lamb. So that's kind of where the the idea of the company was born Um I've always been one with an entrepreneurial mind and kind of wanted to branch out and do something to help the ranch and also something kind of of my own to do. And so that's where that was born. The other big idea that I wanted to keep um, at the forefront of the idea was that anybody could purchase our meat. You didn't have to have a large chest freezer. You didn't have to buy a whole cow from us. You could buy, you know, a 10-pound package that came with five pounds of beef and three pounds of pork and then, you know, two pounds of lamb. And so that was really important to me too, was to be able to make it accommodating to anybody that wanted to purchase our, our, our meats. And, you know, initially growing up in California, you go to a restaurant and you see on a menu where everything on that, on that meal is coming from. And I noticed in, in Montana, you didn't really see that as much. And so it's, it was like a local food trend that wasn't really picking up much out here, but people were starting to be interested more of where their food was coming from. So I thought, okay, well, now's the time to try this because it's starting to become more popular. And I think that the local food trend, it's not just a trend. I think it's here to stay. And so that's kind of where the idea of the company was born. Um, I started it in August of 2015 and basically just started going to farmer's markets and seeing kind of how it all went, and and the reception was great. It is a product that I have to educate people on because it's not something that you see everywhere, at least in this area. So that part is probably the hardest sell is just getting the message out about what we're doing and why we're doing it. Uh, But once people learn about us, get to know us and meet us, and putting a face to the name, then then the product just sells itself and, and people want to be a part of it and they want to know uh, where their meat is coming from. So it's been a process to kind of get the ball rolling on everything, but um, it's been rewarding as well and hopefully continues to grow. Um, we're branching out into restaurants now, which um, has been fun, working with chefs and um, just getting more into the local market and what's great is they can put our name on their menu, and that gives them some credibility of, oh, hey, they're supporting local uh, businesses, they're supporting local farms and ranches, and it kind of gives them an extra credibility to what they're putting on their menu as well and gives them a little bit more of a unique um, 
opportunity of marketing for themselves as well. Right. I, I imagine these farmers markets and restaurants are uh, not in Malt, Montana. They're probably elsewhere. What, what, <laughs> what, what towns are you marketing in? So mostly into the Billings market. Um, it would be great if I lived on the outskirts of like Denver or Portland. Um, but unfortunately, Billings is the biggest city that I have to work with. And um, they're kind of behind the times a little bit in regards to trends within the food industry as far as like local and that type of trend that's really popular in major metropolitan cities, but it's catching on. So um, I, I do feel fortunate enough to live about 45 minutes from Billings so that I am able to utilize that market. Um, a lot of people would love to sell their meat in other parts of the state. It's just they live four hours from, you know, anything. So um, I do consider myself lucky enough to be able to work with the biggest city in Montana. I just wish, you know, we had like a million people to sell to and not 100,000. <laughs> right. Now, now you grew up in Grass Valley, California, which which is not urban by any stretch of imagination, but it's pretty accessible, you know, to, to Sacramento, et cetera. Uh, what? How was that transition from leaving California and living so remotely in Montana? Yeah, so growing up in Grass Valley, I always thought that I was from a really small town. And of course, I moved to Molt, Montana, and that is the definition of a small town. Um, you know, I love Northern California, um, but living out in Montana now, I, I really, I mean, I consider this home 100% now. Um, the transition was interesting <laughs> um, coming from California to Molt, but I've always considered myself a very adaptable person, and that's definitely what I had to be to move out here to, you know, I can go days with only really seeing my husband and the guys that work for us to from, you know, California where you're around hundreds of thousands of people constantly. So it, the transition was interesting, but it definitely was one that I enjoyed, um, figuring out kind of how the ranch ran and things like that, that took a little bit more time basically going through a whole year of transition um, to know how each season worked and, and when certain breeding was happening and lambing and calving and all of that. Um, but for the most part, I held my own, or I like to think I did, or my husband lies to me and tells me I did, but um, it worked out well, and, and I do enjoy going home to California. I do miss a little bit of the agricultural diversity that California offers, um, that was kind of a big, that was probably the biggest transition. You know, I was used to working in the permanent crops industry of grapevines and nut trees and fruit trees, and then moving to a state where there are no such things as orchards. I mean, there's a few cherry orchards up north, but for the most part, the agriculture landscape is extremely different. And that was probably the biggest, biggest transition for me. And then also getting, you know, five feet of snow dumped on you is a little bit of a change, too. Right. And maybe I'm reading this too much into this, but it seems like you have kind of blended the two into a unique perspective that allows you to kind of communicate the rural message to people who are not from rural America, like just with what you're doing online and social media. And I wanted to talk about one animal that will probably never be sold through High Five Meats, and that's uh, <laughs> Totes Magoats. Can you tell, tell everybody who Totes Magoats is? Mr. Totes, he is a funny little character. I call him the ranch mascot, which is funny because we're primarily a sheep ranch, yet I have this goat, like, everywhere on my social media, which doesn't really, you know, translate or make sense, but it's just how it is, I guess. Um, Totes, so my husband and his father, 
they're cattle and sheep buyers as well. So they're at uh, many sales across the state at any given time. And one day, my husband Henry came home, and it was right around our one-year anniversary of being married. And he said, hey, I got your presents on the trailer. And I'm like, oh, God, (laughs) what is it? And I go out there, and it's this adorable little goat. And he said no one was buying it, and he got him for like $5 or something ridiculous like that. And so at that moment, that's when the little love of my life, Totes, came into it. And um, I don't know how it happened, but he just he always followed me around and, and just had a little personality. And um I named him Totes, which obviously fits with the whole goat situation. And, and I started posting pictures of him, and I would randomly dress him up in outfits, and people just loved it. And he just kind of became this little mascot of the ranch, and people are always asking, how's Totes? And he's just got his own little his own little stardom, I guess. And um, he uh, I actually made some shirts with his face on it. I had him running for president at one point. And he's just he's just a funny little character that he'll never get sold. <laughs> he's safe. <laughs> now, I noticed on, on uh, Instagram here lately you've got some other goats as well. Now, did those come because of the success with totes, or, or had you guys are, always had some goats anyway? We never had goats before totes, really. We'd had some here and there that we'd just um, – feed out for a couple weeks and resell or something like that. But we never, you know, kitted any out or had them for an extended period of time. With the lamb markets doing fairly well right now, um, there's the reason why it's doing well is mostly because of the ethnic market that's continually um, growing in our nation and eating lamb. They also eat goat. So the goat market is also doing really well. So we have um, also had neighbors that are interested in having us graze certain areas of their property that would do well for sheep and goats. So we've just seen an opportunity lately to kind of expand and diversify and get some goats. So it's kind of been, I like it because I like the goats as well. I mean, I still consider myself the sheep lady, even though I post a lot of pictures of goats. And, you know, compared to our numbers of sheep, we hardly have any goats. But um, it's just been a new venture for us to kind of see how it goes. Um, something that my father-in-law and my husband are very into is staying diversified within our ranch. Within the agriculture industry, everyone knows, you know, one day you can be doing really well and the next the market drops for no apparent reason. So we find it very important to maintain not only our sheep numbers and their cattle, but also to look at other avenues. And that's kind of where the goats have come in lately. Yeah, no, that's really yeah, interesting. Totally. I, I, um, I've had kind of conflicting opinions on this show before of some people who are similar to yourself and say, Hey, let's put our story out there and we'll tell our story. And part of telling our story is showing off our other, our animals. And then other people saying, well, uh, there's a concern with showing animals in a sort of cute and cuddly light because, uh, ultimately, it, it makes it harder for people to wrap their minds around what ends up happening with not with toads, but with some of these other animals. What What's your opinion on that? And I guess, have you had that question before? Yeah, so I've had, you know, when my, my social media accounts started kind of taking off a little bit, I started getting, obviously, the negative comments from some people. So as far as the telling your story versus not telling your story, I mean, obviously, I rather tell my story. I get 
I get a little frustrated, I guess. I go to a lot of conferences, you know, within the agriculture industry, and I try to always go to the social media uh, seminars. And it's gotten to the point where everyone has social media now, so what's the next step? I feel like we go to these conferences and it's always, okay, we got to tell our story and you got to get social media. And it's like, okay, we got it now. What, what can we do to tell our story better? Or what can we do to engage in our audience better? And for me, um, the people where I'm getting negative feedback from, it's usually an animal activist or a vegan. And I'm not going to change those people's minds no matter what I say or do. The people I'm focused on are the ones that are interested or curious even about where their food is coming from or how their food is being raised. And for me, you know, naming a few animals or dressing them up in silly costumes, it's just something I can do to connect to people that maybe wouldn't necessarily be interested in animal agriculture before. And I I try to engage with people that are, you know, genuinely interested in what I'm doing. If they come at me in an attacking way and they're obviously, you know, have an agenda of, you know, they're working for PETA or something, that's a different story. But if there's somebody that's genuinely curious about what I'm doing or why I'm doing it, then that's someone I can talk to. For example, I had a girl, she reached out to me and she said, I just don't know how you can eat those animals that you're raising. And she was, you know, genuinely interested on in how we do it or why we do it. And I asked her, I said, would you rather know that these animals are having a good life and, and have been tr- treated well and raised well, or would you rather just not know where your meat was coming from and who knows technically how it was raised? And she said, I guess I never really thought about that. And so that was kind of a turning point for me was I try to be as transparent as possible and I try to be as honest as possible with people. I don't think that portraying this perfect world um, of how we do things is necessarily giving me any credibility. I think when I tell the real story of, for example, a coyote attack and how it ate some of our sheep, I'm not necessarily showing them the dead sheep, but I'm telling them what happened and how it affects us. And I think that puts you more on like a level field. You're not like up on this pedestal to them anymore. You're making your story more real and that gives you more credibility and it makes you more interesting in my mind. Like the accounts that I like to follow are the people that are honest and real and transparent about what's going on on their farms and ranches. They're not telling this perfect story about, you know, everything's healthy all the time, everything's perfect, and we're making all this money and and life is grand. It's the people that, you know, also share the struggles that they go through that I think are the ones that have more followers and have more engagement on, on what they're doing on a daily basis. Yeah, and I think that's just it. It's about opening yourself up for that engagement. If if, if you're closed off and, and you're trying to protect, you know, shield them from the realities of agriculture, it, it closes the door from all the engagement that can happen as well, where you can actually have a decent conversation about that. And then I think, uh, you know, a step beyond that, what you do really well is people want to follow you. You know, nobody's walking around saying, I would just love to be more educated and informed about my food choices, right? Just please, someone come right. and lecture me on, on what I should eat. What they want is something that's entertaining, that's funny, that's interesting, and, and something that you've been able to do really well. I would imagine that uh, people who follow your social media accounts are doing so because they just enjoy the content. They're not out there to be lectured to. And that's exactly like when I mentioned going to these you know, 
social media seminars. So I feel like a lot of people within the agriculture industry were just kind of preaching to each other about, you know, whether it be GMOs or grass-fed versus organic, and we're not talking to the people that we actually want to be hearing what we're saying. And so for me, I try to use humor to get people interested in what we're doing and then, you know, in between the viral video of me dressing up a goat or um, showing, you know, something else silly and humorous, I show the reality of what ranch life is like as well. I'm not doing that every single post because then I think you lose your audience, but I think I try to give some sort of unique aspect to what we're doing and and as well as educating people in between all of that. And I think that I think that people in the industry kind of lose sight of first getting people interested in what you're even doing and not just educating them all the time because I mean social media like you said it's a lot about um, being entertained and people I mean when you go on Facebook what what are you seeing you're seeing funny videos and you're seeing you know heartwarming stories well I'm not good with the heartwarming stories but I can you know make fun of myself and show silly animals and and in between all that I hope that I also am trying to educate people with what we're doing as well right yeah you got to open up the conversation before you can even you know to start to, to convey ideas. But uh, Sarah, right. this is, this has been great. I, this is a lot of fun. I had a feeling that you, you would come on here and, and uh, have some interesting insights and, and always entertaining. Uh, as you look to the future of your ranch, uh, what do you see? What other ideas would you like to test out? Or this, this whole show is kind of about the future of agriculture. As you look to the future, other than uh, you'll have a little one here very soon. What else do you see the future of the Hollenbeck Ranch? So I'm always trying to look at like what new products, we can create and directly market um, for ourselves because, I mean, we already do a pretty good job of of what we've been doing, and I credit a lot of that to my husband and his father-in-law, and I'm always trying to look at little niche markets that we can still kind of dive into. Um, I've learned with the meat, it's really expensive to ship, so unless you're selling to a really high-end market, um, Sometimes the shipping is going to be more than what the meat is even worth. So I'm looking into more products that are shippable, uh, mainly because, you know, I've tested out some shirts. They sold really well. I've tested out some ranch hats. They've sold really well. But they're not specific products to our ranch. You know, I'm, I don't want to be selling a shirt with our ranch name that was made in China. I want to be selling something that was made from our ranch um, that is our ranch. And so with that, I've obviously been looking more into, um, been working with a company. We've been working on a lamb jerky. Um, so obviously that would be shippable. It's not perishable. I mean, it is eventually, but doesn't have the shelf life like a, you know, frozen meat would. Um, so that's something I've been working on um, is a lamb jerky. And then also with our wool, I want to make something, a product with our wool. I've got a couple ideas of what that is. But I'm nowhere near completion with that. So, but those are just things down the pipeline. I want to be able to, you know, share what I'm doing with the world or the nation or, or the state or whoever may be interested in what we're doing. And I think with that, I can. there's a lot of opportunities down the road. If people are interested in learning more, how can they follow you on social media or, or check out your, uh, your operation online? So I'm primarily on Instagram. That's my platform of choice, and I am Sarah Sheep Lady. That's my handle. And then I also am on Snapchat. I'm a big Snapchatter, and um, that handle is Miss Montana 14. And then I also have HollenbeckRanch.com 
as well as highfivemeats.com. Great. Thank you so much for taking the time. It's, it's been really fun. Thank you, Tim. Really enjoyed that interview with Sarah Hollenbeck. A couple things that really stand out to me. I love stories about farmers on very conventional operations coming up with ways to be innovative and to reach out directly to consumers. And Sarah certainly has done that up there in Montana. And then secondly, I definitely subscribe to the notion that in order to bridge the gap between consumer and producer that we talk about over and over and over again, the conversation needs to be on the consumer's terms, meaning they aren't sitting around waiting for you to lecture them about how great agriculture is. You need to speak their language. And Sarah has done that through her social media presence and, uh, and through her story that you heard here today. So I think there's some really, really good lessons there for producers and anyone in agriculture to reach out to the person who's ultimately ending up with your product. Hey, this is the point in the show where I would love to every week read a new rating and review from iTunes. If I have one, I do have one here this week. This is from Kevin M1189. This is one of my favorite podcasts I listen to regularly. Tim does a great job with the interviews and has unique guests from different areas of agriculture with a good story to tell every week. I learn something new with every episode and have taken things back to both my job in agriculture and starting my own business. Hey, Kevin, that really means a lot. Thank you for leaving the review. Uh, if you're listening and haven't left one yet, please just take 30 seconds out over to iTunes, leave us a rating and review, and that will help us get the word out about the exciting things that are happening in, happening in the agriculture industry. Thanks, as always, and we'll be back next week with another powerful woman in the industry of agriculture. Thanks. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Future of Agriculture podcast with Tim Hammerich. Visit aggrad.com. That's A-G. GRAD.com today to get connected into careers in the agriculture industry. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>